0: It is it is so good to be here with you and to be able to share together, to worship together. Man, the words of these songs just, they hit you, don't they? Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Or if you have your scripture journals, you can open them up as well, the same passage. And uh, we're going to dig into some stuff this this week. This is a pretty pretty intense chapter that Peter writes for us today. And in this section, it's probably one of the most significant things that he says because he deals with our relationship with Christ and what that does in the world around us. And that we discover that we want to be filled with joy and hope and happiness and blessings and all that when we come to Christ. But we really are going to find out that there is pain in righteousness, And the more we live to be like Jesus and the more we act like him, the more we allow him to transform our bodies instead of living and and projecting the ideals of this world and we begin to look like Jesus, the more the world does not like us. That's just the facts. That's just where it's going to be. So as we look at this, there is the beginning, there is this call for us to have righteousness in our living. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless To begin with, we need to understand that we need to have the right attitude, and he just lays it out. I wish I could do more time developing these words here, but we just don't have that today. So he says we need to have this unity of mind. We need to think the same. We need to have sympathy and look at other people and try to relate and have compassion for them and understand where they are. We need to have this brotherly love that we just embrace one another so much that we walk together hand in hand. And he says, a tender heart and a humble heart mind. I mean, really, that describes the Christian, ought it not? So we have to put in the right attitude as we begin this relationship with Christ, to allow Him to just take control of how we think and how we act. And so we need to have the right response as well, which is really what He's going to look to us at. He says a godly approach to life really incorporates not only the right thoughts and attitudes and the right actions that are motivated by the right attitude, but the proper actions, when we are mistreated, when we are teased, persecuted, messed with, however you want to put it, when mistreated someone that has this wicked disposition in life, believers, we don't retaliate. That's what Peter's telling us. When somebody does something to you, you don't go back at them eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. We don't retaliate to them in any fashion. Peter echoes what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and how we're to respond to people. So he then turns the matter to speech there in verse 9. And Peter warned his readers not to return reviling for reviling or insult for insult, but instead... When we are mistreated by people in an antagonistic way and they're wanting to start a fight with you about something, Christians are to respond by giving blessings rather than something that's negative. We also need to have the right standard. So in addition from refraining from coming back at them for what they're saying and what they're doing, believers need to, need to stop our lips from speaking in manners that are inappropriate. Now in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus confronts the Pharisees based upon uh, their speech. And so he makes this statement in Matthew 12 beginning in verse 33 through 37. He says, "...Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers." How can you speak good when you are evil? He goes on and says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so Jesus then says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." So as Christians, when somebody comes at us and they say something derogatory or negative about our faith, we've got to be careful how we respond because our words are very important. And we return blessing rather than insult. People's words are this outward evidence of their inner character. It's very obvious where people's lives are in relationship to God. Just listen to the way they talk. Now, back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. He takes this passage and he draws it out of Psalm 34. And the verse contains four straightforward imperative commands that we need to have in our lives. And so, first off, every believer is to turn away from evil. Now, that verb, turn away, It connotes an intensely strong rejection of what is sinful. And so in this context, it is the sinful treatment of others, even those who persecute the Christians, were to turn away from responding to them the same manner. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Man, I hear a lot of Christians talk about the negativity in our country today. And and, and it's almost like James and John, the the sons of thunder, and they were mad at a community for the way they responded to Jesus. And, 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 And so they said, well, Jesus, why don't you just cast down fire from hell or fire from heaven and just burn them up? You know, we can't respond that way. We respond with words that bless Second Peter commanded his readers to do good, what is excellent in, in quality, what expresses the deep-down virtues of, of godliness. Now, now, that really differs dramatically from the way the people in this world will respond. When somebody curses them, they come right back at them. And, and, and so the third and fourth imperatives, they appear together in this command for believers to seek peace and pursue it. Now the verb that's translated seek and pursue, both of those they convey an intense, um, aggressive action in, in the way you respond. All right, it's embedded in with a phrase that kind of gives an analogy of a hunter pursuing his prey. And you you've seen that, you know. Um, Elmer Fudd is out and he's hunting wabbits. And he is relentless in this pursuit, even to his own detriment, right? Well, that's how we are supposed to pursue this. We are supposed to pursue godliness in life with this aggressive searching and and pursuing it until we are able to capture it. And what is it? He says it's peace, and it denotes this constant condition of tranquility that is where our joy and our happiness comes from. How can you have joy and happiness in the midst of turmoil? Well, because we've got the peace of Christ. So we go after His peace and everything. We also need to have the right incentive. So Peter quotes here Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, and he really brilliantly fixes the reality that ought to be motivating us in the way that we please God. So the psalmist's words, they describe this sovereign ruling deity of heaven, God, and, 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 and how we should be accountable for our behavior to him and how we should live in obedience to him because he expects it and he punishes those who disobey. But for Peter, the primary issue is not judgment, but God's grace and his care and his provision for those who rely upon Christ. God's care for his people is described as his awareness of their situation in, in the phrase, the eyes of the Lord. I mean, you've heard it. People have told you probably that God's watching. You know, he sees, He observes how we're living and the things we do, and His eyes then and what He observes then in tune His ears to whether or not we, when we pray, He will listen. Now that's important. You know, If I'm going to live as a reprobate all week long and then show up on Sunday morning and I'm going to ask God to bless me He's going to say, I've been watching you all week. Why should I do that? See, our behavior not only impacts those around us, but it's going to impact us in our relationship with God too. So we need to have the right incentives. So God is looking for the righteous so that His ears will open open to their prayers, and He's always fully aware of everything that we say and everything that we do as we live as His children. I often told my kids, you know, anything you do... Your mom and I will know about. (laughs) And we usually did. Now, they're like, well, how do you know that? Well, we're parents. That's just it. You know? Well, God is the same way. He is our parent, and He understands, and He's going to hear about it. He's going to see about our behavior and how we respond. So we need to respond with grace and with love to those, even those who are persecuting us so that our prayers are hindered. Paul writes to the church in Romans and he tells them in chapter 8 verse 26, likewise the Spirit, He helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself, He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So if we're living our lives and we're struggling under the pressures of this world and we just don't know what to say about it, the Spirit then steps and He says, I got you. Don't worry about this. I understand what's going on in your life. Let me convey that to our Father in heaven. John gives us confidence and direction in our prayers, so he writes to us in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that's not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death, I mean, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Hmm. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are from God... And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So how we relate to God and how we live is going to impact how God hears our prayers, and answers our prayers. Now, the second main thing that we need to look at in this passage of Scripture comes here in verses 13 through uh, 17. And it is, it is a co- uh, the conflict that is found because we have this righteous living that goes within us. So let's look at verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You see, faithfulness to Christ, it does not surrender itself to the fear of persecution. We we don't... We don't cower when we know that if somebody is not a Christian and if, we, and if we act like Christ would act, that they are going to then persecute us. And so we don't hide our faith. We still have to live it out loud. We see in verse 14 that having this passion for goodness, and it's certainly not a guarantee that you're not going to suffer. And I think a lot of people get this wrong. When they, when they confess Christ as Lord and they give their life to Him, all of a sudden they think, I'm, I'm saved and life is going to be good and it's going to be wonderful... But you realize that now you have an enemy who didn't have to worry about you before. And so life is not going to be on easy street. It is going to be the most bumpy and rocky road that you might ever travel down. Because suffering is all a part of being a Christian. And if you're not suffering, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, how real is my faith? See, many Christians in the early church, including some of Peter's readers, they did suffer. And some of them were martyred. They were killed for their faith. You see, likewise, Christians today should not be surprised or afraid if suffering comes. It's happening all around the world. And in America, we've been pretty blessed that we haven't had to undergo things that are taking place in other nations. Sometimes doing right is not enough to keep us from being mistreated because people may abuse us just because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we do good. But believers should have no fear in them. Literally, the verse 14 says that we should not fear their fear. That's interesting, isn't it? Why do they do that? Because they honestly have a fear about life. They're afraid to die themselves. You see, there is this intimidation by unbelievers who persecute us. But we not may be troubled by those. Literally, he tells us there that we should not be shaken or stirred up. Now, I know that James Bond likes his shaken and not stirred. But this word is kind of in reference. In in the book of John, chapter um, chapter 5, verse 7, there is the same word that is used, and it's used in the pool of Bethesda. That was told that the angels might come down and they would stir and agitate the waters. And if somebody could get in there while it was being agitated, they might receive a healing or a blessing and a physical healing. And so people would kind of gather around and wait and wait and wait, not knowing when it might be stirred up. But we're told that we ought not worry about this. And the reason that we're not to have this fear or this trouble or being stirred up or agitated... Even in these difficult times, it's because Paul explains in Romans 8, 31-39, that what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's us. It is God who justifies." Well, who is to condemn? Well, Jesus, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's the persecution, or distress, or persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? I mean. Who's going to separate us from God? He says, As it's written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we shouldn't fear. Because no matter what they rail at us against us with, God still loves us and He's still going to be with us. Faithfulness to Christ is also built upon a secure foundation. So the call here in verse 15 is, is a call to affirm our submission to God's control, to His instructions, to His guidance, to His leading. We submit ourselves to Him first and foremost. Now, when Polycarp, who was a bishop at the church in Smyrna, when he was arrested and brought before the magistrates, he was asked to blaspheme and deny his relationship with Jesus Christ or he would be executed. These were his words. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Amen. You know, you cannot make or take away what is not in your power. And in 1 Peter 3.15 and elsewhere, it clearly specifies that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, whether they accept that or not, and that every knee at one point is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. They're going to acknowledge him. Lordship is, is the key to godly living. And so Jesus asked this question in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He said, But why do you call me Lord? Lord? And you do not do what I say. You can't call him Lord and be disobedient because Lord signifies that he is the master of your life and you don't do anything without his permission, without his approval, without his direction, without his guidance. We don't disobey him. But if we're going to call him Lord, we have to obey him. Samuel Wilberforce, who was the bishop in the Church of England, he once said that lordship could be defined in four Words. Admit, submit, commit, and transmit. Admit, submit, commit, and transmit. So this is what he said. We must admit our sin and need of a Savior. We must forsake sin and submit our lives to Christ as Lord. We must commit our way to the lord and we must transmit or share his love and goodness with others and that summarizes everything about being a christian it's not just endurance through the blessings or of suffering but which christians are submit to but we're also to have the opportunity to defend the truth of the gospel of jesus whenever we're asked by people why we have a hope in him so we need to always be ready be prepared to give an answer and a defense of our faith, you know, always indicates that the need for a constant readiness. We, we can't just say, um, let me study up on that and I'll get back with you next week. We've been given that opportunity at that moment, so we need to take that moment to respond. And, and the idea is it, it's this response or this defense that is often used in a courtroom. All right, so when we think about it, we're supposed to respond with our defense as if a lawyer were responding to the defense of the person in whom he was uh, speaking for. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Judas explained it this way, why it's necessary. He said, beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are people who slip into every church And they're trying to twist the words of God for their own benefit. But we need to know the truth so that we can defend it when we're called upon. So you've got to spend time in your Bible. You've got to spend time listening to others as they try to interpret what it is saying as well. We've got to spend time listening to God's Word in our lives on a daily basis. The way to always be ready and prepared is to study continually. So we we read it on a daily basis. We don't let a day go by. A preacher friend of mine just posted on Facebook last night, if you were paid a salary for every minute that you have spent reading the Word of God, how, how much would you have? My response was, well, I should be a millionaire, but I've got a long way to go and i think that's true for all of us we should be millionaires by the now by the time we have spent reading the word of god but unfortunately it is not really a priority in our lives there's other things that seem to be more important the baseball game you know that show that we have to record because we're not there at this time and so we'll watch it later when we get back home there's all kinds of things we put before him so we're called to make this defense we're called to always be prepared. The word there for defense is apologia. That's where we get our words apology or apologetics. All right, It often means a formal defense in a courtroom, but Paul also used it as explaining when we are informally asked by other people outside of the courtroom how we should give this defense for our faith. Evangelism is sharing the gospel message. Apologetics is the ability to defend it. Are you ready to defend the Word of God to people when they ask you why it's real? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Some people will pick up this Bible, and they will read it, and they'll go, well, that was stupid. why do he do that? And they just don't get it. But to those of us who have found salvation in Christ in it, man, there's power in this. It's as alive, it's living, it's active. It motivates us in life on a daily basis. It speaks to us in, in every way that we live, in every manner of life. It has the words of life that are contained within it. But a fool, they just see it not even as good as a Stephen King novel because to them it's foolishness. The gospel, however, is identified as the hope for us. It is the hope that we put our our lives in at stake. Hope is synonymous with the Christian faith because the motivation for people that are embracing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is their escape from hell and their guarantee of an eternal life before the presence of God Almighty. So our believers' dispense of this hope before the unbeliever who asks must be firm, uncompromising, true, and powerful. But at the same time, it needs to be conveyed with gentleness and respect. And that's important. Gentleness refers to the meekness or the humility of, of a person, an individual. And, 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 and nobody really wants an evangelist that comes in that they're a know-it-all. Those Jesus freaks, those Bible thumpers, those people who just are always pouring things down on us. They don't want that. They don't want somebody who's pushy. You know, I remember one time answering a door and a salesman put his foot in the doorway so I couldn't shut it. <laughs> and I just looked at him and his foot and I said, you can remove that. And the same thing is true. If you're being pushy as a Christian, shoving your faith on somebody, they're going to shut the door. You've got to be true in what you say, but you've got to do it with gentleness and respect. Otherwise, they're going to close themselves off to you. None of us want to be shoved down our throats. So how does our conduct impact our message? Well, Arthur McPhee wrote it this way. He said, The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few. But the one that is most read and commented on is the Gospel according to you. You're writing a Gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true, Say, what is the gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life? Or has yours been too full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil or or does it ring true? Say, what does the gospel according to you? Someone once said that you are the only Bible others may ever read. May you be attractive to draw them into Christ. Faithfulness to Christ also brings righteous suffering. Being mistreated or or, or maliciously slandered because you're a Christian doesn't give a license to respond back in the same way. In other words, Christians have this incredible contribution to make to to the society in which we live where people are always giving evil for evil. And instead, we ought to treat them with good for evil. And so Peter tells us back in verse 16 that believers should expect to be reviled by their adversaries. I mean, that's just, that's just common. Those who hate Christ ought to treat us nasty. Be ready for it because it should happen. However, a Christian with a pure conscience can withstand the abuse and the mistreatment that's thrown at them, and their behavior can actually cause those who are harming them to actually feel guilty and put to shame because of how they've been treating you. In short, the Holy Spirit will use our good behavior to convict people of their sin. Now, that's powerful. The final point that Peter makes in verse 17 concerns the suffering. He says that there are two possibilities. First off, believers may suffer for doing good and accepting that pain as a part of God's wisdom in their life and His His will for them in all things. But the second thing he says that they may suffer for doing evil and they may receive the expected discipline that the Lord is going to discipline those who do evil. So if you're, going to, if you're going to live a life that's just like this world, you better expect God's discipline. But sometimes he allows you and me to go through the suffering and the hatred of our world because it's going to convict them of their sin and in turn it's going to bring blessing into our lives. Isn't it a great thing when your enemy becomes your brother? Rather than your brother, your enemy. Our character, our attitude, the way we live, the way we speak is very important. Now, the victory that is gained through righteous living is the final thing here in verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Students of World War II, when you look at VE Day... When the war was finally over, it took place on May 8th of 1945. But in a real sense, the war in Europe was over on June 6th, 1944, which was commonly called D-Day. In a very real sense, that war was completely finished. It was only really the beginning of the military buildup that Germany would never be able to stop. And the war really was lost for hitler victory in the fight against evil in europe was sure but this rather academic assessment of things just saying that okay yeah d day was in in 44 and ve day was in 545 that's not really what it really matters what matters is that even though the treaty was not signed until 45 the war really was lost and 44, when we stormed the beaches of Normandy. But there were still soldiers dodging bullets, crawling through trenches, fighting on a daily basis, skirmishes here and there. Because the war was possibly won, it wasn't over yet. And they had to endure even some setbacks Now, there's some resemblance to that when it comes to the Christian experience. You see, God himself has invaded history through his son, Jesus. And he came to our rescue and he fought the good fight, and he made a decisive victory in the battle when he gave his life on the cross and when he rose from the dead. The enemy knew the war was over. And in his death and resurrection, Hebrews 9 12 tells us that he has secured an eternal redemption for us. Final victory has been guaranteed, and he has made full and final satisfaction for our sins. And having successfully completed the task and the work that he was sent into this world to do for our salvation, he has triumphed over Satan. But then again, sometimes it doesn't seem that way, does it? Because we're still fighting a battle. But victory has been assured. We are caught up in a real battle in faith. And our adversary walks around like a roaring lion trying to find somebody just to devour and eat. That's what Peter's going to tell us in chapter 5 coming up. But our constant struggles and our struggles against him, you see, he takes people captive and he persecutes and, and does everything against them. And from the perspective of the trenches... It seems like God hasn't won yet, but He has. Just like Hitler, knowing his time was up, he then sent a mass of soldiers out to their own destruction because he wasn't willing to give up until his life was over. So sin, temptation, suffering, injustices, death, loneliness, disappointment, all that goes with that, are ways in which Satan hinders us in the war. But sometimes we do that ourselves, don't we? And if we're in the trenches and we're not careful, we can lose perspective. We must never lose sight of the fact that the struggle that we face is because of the hope that we have in Christ. Redemption has been accomplished, even though it may not have been fully realized yet because we're not in the presence of God he still is victorious. V-Day is still ahead, even though D-Day took place on the cross. We are victorious. So in 1 Peter 3, 18-22, the Apostle Peter draws together various examples to show us how victory over sin and death was accomplished. And so he introduces to the story here, Noah and the ark and the flood and the people of the world at that time. And, and he's trying to help us identify with victory in that with the ark of Noah, the baptism of the Christian, they have these elements of God's victory in our lives. And so the first thing is this victorious sin bearing that Christ has done for us. So he ties together Christ's victory over sin and death. Back to the previous passage there in 13 through 17 by using a couple conjunctions of also and for, it reminds us that we ought not be surprised or discouraged because we are suffering. And since Christ triumphed in his suffering, even though he died this excruciating death, he was victorious. Most believers may not die as martyrs. You may not be killed for your faith, but your death still is the wages of your sin. You still will die. Romans 6.23 tells us that. Now far from being a story of despair, Christ's victory over sin is one of hope and encouragement for us. I mean, Peter here encourages Christians to identify with the heroic nature and the victory of Christ, even if they intend to follow in his footsteps which he challenges us to do, it's better to suffer for doing good than it is for doing something that is wrong. Even if a Christian were to suffer to the point of an unjust martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ, that type of suffering still has a purpose in God for us. Because death is not the final word. Life is is everlasting. Jesus suffered and he died for sins. And that he was, as Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, 28, that he was offered once really to bear the sins of many. He wasn't going to have to be sacrificed over and over and over again because that one sacrifice, that one thing that he did for us was it. And so his triumph of his death expresses back in Peter verse 18 in the phrase that he might bring us believers to God. He did that so that he could introduce us to Christ. Now, Prosago is the word that is used there, and it emphasizes the purpose of Jesus' actions, and it describes somebody introducing somebody to someone else. In classical Greek, it was used in in the presence of a king. So there would be somebody, a chief official within the kingdom, that would be the person who would determine whether or not you get to see the king or not. And he would make the determination whether you were appropriate. And if he decided you were, then he would take you into the king and introduce the king to you. Jesus is that one for us today. He is the one who brings us, who introduces us to God. He intercedes on our behalf because God in his righteousness and in his holiness has to bring his wrath against sin. But Jesus says, now hang on. This is my friend John, and we've got a relationship together, and his sins I've taken, so I want to introduce you to him because he's put his faith in me. And he does the same thing for you. He introduces us to his Father. Now, the work of Christ brought about victory over sin and death. Also because of, we might classify it as, as his sermon, it's his life, it's his message, everything that, that he exposed himself to in this world. And so the phrase, having been put to death in the flesh, leaves no doubt on the, that while Jesus was on the cross, he physically died. So that debunks the theory that he just fainted, and after they buried him in the coolness of the cave, he woke back up. No, he physically died, but his spirit and his soul continued on. And that phrase, he was made alive in the spirit, is reference to his eternal person. See, the eternal aspect of Jesus' nature, we really can't fully comprehend because before time began, before the creation of the world, Jesus was. He is even today, and he will be for all eternity. There is no beginning and no end. Jesus. So even that death there in Jerusalem on that awful Friday, it didn't remove him. He still lives. And Christ lives in a spiritual realm of permanence. And he lives in the spirit because of his death in the body. And in this state, he brings us to God and he opens a way to usher us into our reward of heaven the very presence of God. And with the text, Christ made this proclamation to the spirits in prison, it's indicating that He purposefully, when He died, He told that thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, Peter says, well, He went to Hades, He went to the spirits in prison, well, what's going on here? Well, as best we understand, there was before Jesus, there was a resting place of the dead And within it, there was this great gulf fixed between the two. There was paradise on one side and Hades on the other side. Now, they were both called Hades as a whole. It was the resting place of the dead. So when Jesus says he's going to paradise, he went to paradise, yes. But when Peter says he went to Hades, or he went into this resting place of the dead, yes, he did. But what's he speaking? He's speaking his victory over those who were condemned because of their unrighteousness and their sin. And he demonstrates to them, watch, I may be dead, but I'm alive. And he rises from the dead. And so Peter introduces not only his death and his proclamation of his victory to those who were dead, but also his resurrection and the power that is there within it. So when we consider that Christ made this proclamation and he preached or he heralded his victory and his triumph over death in the grave, we have to understand that Jesus and his sacrificial giving, the work on the cross, gives us a hope that even if we die, we can live. And so there is this victorious salvation that is offered before us. The biblical kind of what when God's patient waited in the days of Noah before sending the flood, Peter sees as this analogy between that and the Christian's salvation, in connection with his baptism. And so during that 120-year period of grace where God waited for Noah to build the ark, he just waited patiently because he wanted to destroy the world and begin again. He announced his judgment on them, but he also offered them a way of deliverance at the same time. They need to just get in the ark. The members of Noah's family, though however were the only 8 people on earth to heed that divine warning and enter into the ark and avoid the catastrophe that was coming with a worldwide flood, and eventually only Noah and his wife and their 3 sons and their wives were brought safely through the waters while the rest of humanity was drowned in God's judgment. Now, in 1 Peter 3:21 Peter mentions that baptism corresponds to this. That word corresponds, it contains the word antitupon, which is where we get our word antitype, right? And, and, and what it means is it means a copy or a, or a figure that points to or a, a counterpart. So it, it gives us an identity of something, a symbol from something else. And so the Word created this theological term, antitype, which describes, basically expresses things in earth to kind of give us an understanding of what's in heaven as well. And so it's this symbol or analogy of the spiritual truth. Salvation in the ark of those who believed in God is equivalent with the salvation of believers have in Christ. So although baptism may be thought of as a declaration, it is a declaration that constitutes this implicit pledge of continuing a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it kind of calibrates our moral compass by which we live. Baptism is is a seal of this covenant, of this contract that we have with Christ. Now, certain theological traditions misinterpret Peter's statement that baptism now saves you to refer to a spiritual salvation by water baptism or water regeneration. There is no power in the water that's back here. But it is life-changing when you connect the water and the action of being baptized with the inner person of what's taking place, the pledge of his good good conscience to God. He's making his contract with God that I'm going to live in obedience to you as my Lord. But there's nothing magical about this. Friday, we had a baptism and a guy in the afternoon just rejoiced in the fact that he finally surrenders himself to Christ. But there was nothing significant with the water because it is what transplaces inside. Baptism means to immerse and not just, not just pouring or sprinkling or anything about water. Matter of fact, Peter uses baptism to to a figurative immersion into Christ as the ark of safety that will sail over this, this judgment of God within our world. So the waters of baptism are like the waters of judgment, similar to the waters of the flood were clearly the waters of judgment for the people in Noah's day. Coming out of the waters of baptism corresponds with being kept safe through the waters of the flood. And the waters of God's judgment on sin and the emerging to life is this newness of life as as we'd see in Romans chapter 6. Baptism shows us clearly that we have died, we have been buried, and we have been raised again into a new life as a new creation of God. The old is gone, the new has come. No longer does God look at us and recognize our sin because he He recognizes the blood of His Son. And we're made holy because of what Jesus has done. As Noah fled into the ark, so we flee to Christ, and in him we escape our judgment. Therefore, we can kind of paraphrase this passage by saying baptism now saves you. It's not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but it is the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. And if we argue with baptism, one, it's also just a command of God, and we need to be obedient with it. So Peter is actually referring to a spiritual reality when he wrote about baptism, and he then connects it with the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That word appeal is a technical term that, again, is used in making contracts. All right, Here it refers to agreement that is certainly divinely required because God is the one who initiates this contract. The question is, will we enter into it with him? Right? So to be baptized is to make this appeal to God, to please God as I enter into this relationship with Him, to cleanse not my outward body, but the inward soul of who I am in my heart, to forgive me of my sins, to make me right before Him. In this way, baptism really is the appropriate symbol for the beginning of a Christian life. So Acts 2.38 helps us understand when when Jesus or Peter is speaking to the people and they they recognize we've killed Jesus, we've killed our Messiah, now what are we going to do? And so Peter says, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, baptism is appropriately administered to anyone who is old enough to make this appeal to God. Peter was talking about the removal of dirt from the body and a pledge of a good conscience is what he really wanted. Now, baptism is like a wedding ring. I can wear my wedding ring and you know that I've entered into a contractual relationship with somebody else. So it's just kind of a symbol that we say, oh... Oh, she's married, and the guy walks away. Oh, he's married, and we recognize that because there is this symbol that identifies the vow and the pledge that we've made together. So the ring itself is unimportant other than what it represents. The same way baptism is this recognition of somebody who has made a contract and a pledge with Christ, and has become, as he refers to us as, the bride of Christ. So it is, this, it is this symbol, this seal, this outward recognition that we see and we say, oh, a contract has been made. Normally you will not find a Christian, or shall I say, we will not find somebody who is not a Christian who has been baptized. Because baptism is something that is, in essence, the ring of the contract. So in the New Testament times, if a person was not baptized, you could probably assume that he or she really was not a Christian. Finally, the work of Christ brought victory over sin and death because he's just supreme. Really, that's who he is. Peter concludes with a statement about Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers who have been subjected to him. Now that places Him in the most preeminent place in heaven, at the right hand of God, giving Him authority, giving Him a name that is above every other name. He is supreme and His decisions that are made coincide exactly with His Father's. And it undergirds both the meekness and the boldness of us when we put our faith in Him, that we shouldn't have to worry about the suffering that's going to come because we understand there is pain in righteousness So in Ephesians, Paul writes this as we wrap things up. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. There is power In this relationship with Jesus. And even if you face persecution, he's telling the readers who were getting ready to face persecution because of Nero, hang in there, keep your hope on Christ because you are victorious. And the same is true for us today. We are victorious as long as we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we connect with him and allow him to invade our hearts we sign and seal that with the giving of a ring, of baptism. I don't know where you are if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never proclaimed him as Lord, if you've never surrendered and been baptized into his name. Man, today would be a great day to do it. If you'd like to, we're going to sing. I, just, I challenge you to come down here. We'll sit and talk and pray, and we'll set up a time to do whatever needs to be done.